The word of the Lord from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The beginning of this sermon is at the foot of Mount Sinai, near the beginning of the Exodus. God has remembered his promises, and he has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, and true to his word, he is leading them towards the promised land. They are his people already. He has not brought them to Sinai to say, Hey, now that you're away from Pharaoh, you can audition to be my people by keeping these Ten Commandments. No, he says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has delivered them, and now he gives them the Ten Commandments and other laws so that they don't wander off to false gods and perish. Always remember, the Ten Commandments are not a tryout where God says, if you keep these, then I will deliver you. These are God saying, I've done everything to save you. You are already out of Egypt. So keep these laws lest you forfeit what I have given. If that seems a minor distinction... I suppose we could compare it to the difference between a parent saying to a child, if you don't play in traffic, then I might keep you as my child. Or, I love you so much that I want you to be safe, so don't play in traffic. It's the difference between rescuers at sea saying, if you behave well, then we will haul you into the boat and away from the sharks, and now that we've rescued you, We want you to follow these rules so that you don't fall back into the water. See, the Lord has rescued his people, and he's taking them to the promised land. He has made them his people, and he gives them his commands to keep them as his people. He does more than that, though. He gives them help. He declares in Exodus chapter 23, Behold, I send an angel a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, 
for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So the Lord sends an angel before them. On the one hand, it doesn't sound all that impressive because the word for angel also means messenger, which could just mean a prophet or a preacher. But on the other hand, this angel is going to drive out the nations and defeat their enemies. So this would be the angel of the Lord. He operates by his voice, says God. He operates by his word. He's the one in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is Jesus, long before he is born of Mary, leading the Israelites toward Canaan. Don't get hung up on the he will not pardon your transgression part, as if Jesus does not forgive. Remember, God has already made them his people. If they rebel against him, he will not forgive them because they are rejecting the forgiveness that he has for them. The Israelites should pay careful attention to this angel, this messenger, and obey his message, says God, because he's already brought them out of Egypt, right? He's promised to bring them through the wilderness and give them the promised land, right? So, of course, they should pay careful attention to his voice, right? Again, you know how this turns out. Forty years later, forty years later, the Israelites who enter the promised land are not the ones who left Egypt, save two of them. Those who left Egypt have died in the wilderness because they did not obey the voice of God. They rebelled against him continually. But God has promised, and he delivers his people into the promised land. He drives out their enemies. He essentially says to them again, I give you this land forever and I will protect you. So keep my commandments so that you don't wander off to false gods that can't protect you because they're nothing at all. You know how that turns out too. It doesn't take all that long before Israel in the promised land is split into two warring kingdoms. It's not long after that until the Assyrians destroy the northern ten tribes and carry them off into exile, never to be seen again. And it's not long after that until the Babylonians level Jerusalem and carry the survivors into captivity. Many of them will accuse God of being unfair, when in reality, they've insisted on being rebellious children who play in traffic and swim with sharks. Knowing such disobedience and still desiring salvation, God still does not abandon his people. In fact, as soon as Adam and Eve fell into sin, he set into motion a plan of salvation, not by the works and obedience of sinners, but by the works and obedience of a Messiah. So, even in the dark days when the Assyrians were dismantling the northern tribes and spilling blood, the Lord still faithfully repeated his promises through his prophets, through his messengers. It was then that Isaiah prophesied, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Someday, 
in the fullness of time, said Isaiah, God would send someone to repair his way, his own way, by crying out, by proclaiming his word. It was only a matter of time. And later, when the southern kingdom had fallen and the Babylonians had done their worst, when there was no kingdom of Israel to be found, the prophet Malachi prophesied the Lord declaring, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Like Isaiah, Malachi said that the Messiah would come, preceded by a messenger who would prepare the way with a message. In fact, Malachi's prophecy sounds a lot like God's promise at Sinai way back in Exodus 23, where we began. There, the Lord said, Behold, I send an angel, a messenger before you. In Malachi, he changed it to, Behold, I send my messenger, my angel, and he will prepare the way before me. Because sinners were unable to save themselves by keeping his law, God declared that he would save them, not merely by sending the Messiah, but by being the Messiah. It was only a matter of time. So we finally arrive at our gospel reading, which begins rather beginningly with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the beginning of more rules from God via Jesus because more laws will always do the trick when you can't keep the ones you've already got. No, it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that this record of good news is about a man named Jesus who is also the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah. All of that should get your attention, but on top of that, you know the kicker. This gospel is arguably not exactly good news for Jesus, as it's largely the story of how he goes from his birth to an unjust crucifixion for the sins of the world. The gospel is good news for you, the good news that his crucifixion atones for your sins. The gospel repeats Malachi's promise, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, except that it's modified to, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. This doesn't mean that God has backed out of being the Messiah and delegated. This is the wonder of the Trinity at work, that the Father sends a Son to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. The gospel reminds you of Isaiah's promise of the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, not just the Messiah, but the Lord himself. So the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with the announcement that the Son of God, God of God and light of light, is taking the place of sinners. He is not sending sinners to their doom, nor is he sending them to atone for their sins by doing great feats that would make Hercules look like a mama's boy. He's not sending another great role model that his people can turn into a celebrity until they figure out that he's a sinner too. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
The wages of sin is death. No sinner can pay that debt, so God is going to do it himself. Advent is a penitential season. Our services are a little more somber, but that's not just so Christmas seems even cheerier. As we draw nearer to celebrating the birth of Jesus, we dare never let slip from our minds that he is God and man born to die in our place. This little tidbit opening to Mark's gospel then provides plenty of wonder and penitence so that we might rejoice in our Savior all the more. From the 30,000 foot level, God's faithfulness shows, hmm, how do we put this nicely? It shows the stupidity of your ongoing sin. I mean, he has created you, he has proven his faithfulness, and he has kept his promises, so you ought to know that his ways are for your best. But even more than that, he's done everything necessary for your salvation before you were ever born. Your old sinful nature will constantly caricature God as the tyrant who wants you to jump through hoops and then might save you if you jump through enough. But that's because your old Adam loves to jump back in the water and swim with the sharks in traffic. But God is not saying, if you're good enough, then I'll save you. He is constantly saying, I've already saved you. I've given you life, and it is my fervent desire that you not return to death. Guess what your sins are doing? Returning you to death. Guess what your laziness regarding good works is doing? Returning you to death. You might not like the word stupidity, but you want to say that it's smart? Repent. What's more astonishing about the start of Mark's gospel is that God is not content to stay at the 30,000 foot level. He gets down in the dirt and the water and the mud with sinners. He becomes flesh. He becomes man to dwell with man, to take man's place in life, in death, in grave, in judgment, and then in resurrection. When John the Baptist says that Jesus is mightier than he, it is one of the greatest understatements ever. But it will always be an understatement because we cannot comprehend how mighty Jesus is. The almighty Son of God becomes man. And that's a wonder. What's even more a wonder is that he lets man get away with rejecting him, tormenting him, abusing him, slandering him, and killing him. And he does it for their good. On that cross, in that suffering, he takes their place in judgment so that he might pardon them. So that he might pardon you. As if the 30,000 foot view wasn't enough for repentance, Jesus in the dirt and on the cross for your salvation certainly is. But he is no longer on the cross or in the grave. He is risen from the dead and ascended into heaven for your good. He baptizes you, not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. He bids you to a life of repentance, which is a life of not jumping to the sharks. 
He promises forgiveness and everlasting life because he has died your death for your sin already. As we begin this new year and begin the Gospel of Mark, this truth already rings clear. Because Jesus comes, your end in this life is only your beginning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.